Hello everyone, and welcome to An Eye on the Future. I'm Kaz Gurgri. Supercon and I continue our interview with Anthony Soltis, this time discussing time travel, capitalism, and education. There's been a fair gap between episodes, as I've been having a bit of time off recovering from a surgery, so I apologise for that, but I hope you continue to enjoy this discussion. about we tackle time travel from a philosophical basis right so conceptually with time travel from a moral standpoint if you could do it should you do it based off say i think i I remember reading once that if we were to like travel for example two thousand years into the past we'd take back disease that could essentially wipe out whoever we met there uh, yeah, okay. And um, if you were to travel 2,000 years into the future, you'd probably just kill yourself because you wouldn't have the immune system capable of that culture. There's, I guess maybe that's the reason that people haven't travelled back morally. They, they're not allowed. If it yeah. Exist. Um, that's really, really interesting. I listened to a podcast not too long ago. And they were saying, you know, the classic example is, um, you know, when you ask a lot of people what they'd do, uh, they'd go back and kill Hitler. And you're like, well, at what point do you kill Hitler? You know, like, do you kill him before he's done anything wrong in the middle of the war, at the beginning of the war? Some people say, no, no, like, I kill him as a child, you know, so that that just isn't even mm. possible. Um, and then they're a child killer. Yeah, then it's, it's just plain and simple. They're a murderer. Mm. Um there are lots of I, I really don't know much about this, um, unfortunately. To not enough to answer your question uh, to do it justice. No, but talking about that Hitler thing, like even if you did kill baby Hitler, that state of mind that it, it was a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't because of one guy spouting to the whole. Community. Unless he it was, was a, the catalyst for the butterfly effect. Yeah. theory. Maybe. I don't know, because in order to figure out this situation, we either need to set up a perfect simulation, and in one case we have Hitler, in one case we don't, or we travel back in time and mm. kill Hitler. Would the Second World War happen it? without Hitler? Yeah. Probably. That's a, that's because yeah. the the environment was ripe for it, wasn't it? It was basically Germany had been um, uh, the terms are wrong, but they were basically a third world country because of the Treaty of Versailles from World War One. Like they were literally using money as wallpaper because it was worthless. Mm. Yeah, there's the <laughs> sorry. Yeah, there's basically the idea that there's an inevitability in time. Sorry, I was just doing, I was just reading really quickly. Um, Catching up on a bit of study. <laughs> no, they're just, it's really interesting questions because it's stuff I have not thought about for, you know, the better part of three years now. Like, I, mm. I have these kind of vague recollections of things that I've studied, but I don't have that sort of fluid thought that I had before. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's like the grand paradox of time travel, which is basically like which version of yourself time travels. And for time to be consistent and coherent, basically, if you go back in time, you don't exist. So what part of you goes back in time? Does it mean you freeze time and re-enter time? Because that's not time travel. Like time travel basically delineates like a really, it is a linear path. And there's a sequence of things. So you can't go back and change things that didn't happen. You can only change things that did happen because if they didn't happen, then that's not part of time. So essentially when you go back in time like that to, to change the past, you actually have to create a parallel universe. Yeah. So that's sort of one of the classic paradoxes of time travel. Um, but yeah. I mean, I mean, it's really interesting. I'd never thought about it from the perspective of like, if you went back in time, you know, would your gut biome be able to cope with the environment or would you, you know, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think I was thinking um, about it the other day and thinking like, you know, we've got all our history books and you can kind of relive society through word, but it would be interesting to live it. Like what is missing from that written text? That you'd experience. Yeah, I always love those um those uh those shows on like ABC and BBC where a family goes back in time. Mm. You know, they get put into a capsule and sort of you know they live the farm life or whatever. And there are all of those really fun discoveries where it's like actually you begin to smell things smell really bad and they taste awful. Mm. and you know when you start recreating yeah there's a, a sort of a culinary foray into um into old recipes and people make them and they're like this is god awful you know and that's the idea is you know there's that kind of progression and you know we refine all of these things i i'd be really curious because you know something like antibiotic resistance like you don't have to go back in time what like 40 years and it'd be so interesting to see what what we could have done differently with drugs um, to reduce antibiotic resistance today. Because there's the great curve. I saw a really good chart the other day, which is like basically in the like thirties, we went from having zero drugs to like the seventies, eighties and nineties, where we had a huge range of drugs um, and classes of drugs to treat um, to treat bacterial infections um, and antivirulents, but yeah, mostly antibiotics. And they're basically to the modern age where we have a really select number and we're looking at like 10 years until we basically have no defense left if we don't, um, and if we don't mm, basically the trajectory for that It's pretty frightening, isn't it? Cause I've got, I've got some friends studying this down at RMIT like mm. looking at alternatives and like already it's a health problem. Um, but like number of deaths would probably, you know, re overtake cancer and it could be like a little scratch ends up killing you again. Mm. But I guess it's nice seeing their research, which it's not drug based. Um, I guess it is specific to say if you have a transplant or something and you've got a metal component in your body, mm. often they can become infected. 
their solution to that is essentially well, one of them is they've got like gallium which they can put in and then they uh, what is it they use like a magnetic field on it which essentially spins it like a ninja star and basically cuts up the bacteria wait were you talking about this the other day uh probably yeah hmm. no you were talking about this the other day um but yeah they mentioned that at uni as well so oh, yeah, i was yeah. just trying to figure out yeah but it's interesting how it's like uh damn we can't we probably can't use chemicals anymore because bacterial resistance has built up got to figure out other methods we literally mm. it is chemical still but it's a mechanical process yeah yeah it's it's really frightening because you know people are really concerned about covid and you know we i think you know we've got a lot to the work culture has a lot to answer for this idea of like you get sick you go to the doctor you get drugs you get better you go back to work as soon as possible the emphasis on productivity removes the human aspect by removing the human aspect of it we're actually like you know, and allowing people to be sick and allowing their body to have a, a natural reaction to something. Um, we've basically stemmed the whole process and just thrown drugs into the mix. Um, Even it probably became highlighted in the pandemic of it spread quickly because people can't say, no, I can't go into work because I won't be able to pay for rent. Mm. So is it I can't survive with rent or do I, you know, there's maybe a 5% chance I've got COVID. So 95% of the time, doesn't matter. It is literally the sniffles or whatever, but that 5% is all it requires for it to just propagate. Yeah. Because people have that necessity in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you're forcing a moral decision onto people and but the decision is so much more than a moral decision. It's it's a really, it's a fiscal dilemma. And in sort of the capitalist society with a really poor base net, uh, sorry, a really poor safety net, you're forcing people to make decisions that aren't predicated on real values. You know, you're forcing people to make a decision based on something like money, which, you know, it makes the world go round sort of thing, but it really is an arbitrary it's a pretty arbitrary figure, you know, it's a life. If productivity was a springboard, I think capitalism and productivity, making more money was the thing that just drove everything forward. Right. In yeah. The past. Yeah. But at the same time, it seems to have done it disproportionately. Like it's sprung some things forward just so far whilst others haven't really been able to use the springboard to the same extent. And it's just caused a huge disparity. Like uh, you just think of how rich Jeff Bezos is and mm. the morals on him. Hopefully he doesn't listen. Like, uh, I guess a lot of it's tied he's up. Got with stocks. You mentioned his it's, name. He's got a bug. Yeah. It's on this one now. Like his funds, they're probably not like liquid. He probably can't access them readily. And to him, it's probably partly a number like that he's playing a game and he just wants to get richer and richer. But at what point 
does he stop? I'd say obviously never. Mm. Well, but... it's, it's this thought of it. It's the basically the boring old conservative idea of the trickle down effect that you just keep going and then eventually some of the benefits will trickle down to the rest of society. And yeah, in some ways, it, it doesn't really work to the extent that he has to get his money from somewhere. And it's probably coming from the poor in general, in comparison to him, at least. Mm. And like this one person has more worth than like the whole of Australia's spent on the pandemic type of thing. Like that's bizarre. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 not real. That's the thing. Is mm. it's it's you know the value is an, an illusion in that that case. But but it's 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 real value in that he can use it to use his power and influence to get things that he needs. So there's real value there. But I think there's probably a divergence of what we think about value at this point. Mm. Mm. It, bec it becomes tricky, you know, but that I always think that when you have questions like this, the best place to turn is to like 18th, 19th and early 20th century Russia, because basically they, they had all of this, you know, in some iteration, you know, history just gives us the answers. You know, we already have the answers, actually, you know, what happens when you give people that much wealth and power? And we're beginning to see little like, you know, here, like the Black Lives Matter is a really is a really poignant and relative example. Um, you know, the can cancel culture is another one. Um, and, you know, that big, what was it, the Wall Street, what do they call it? It was the thing that everyone was doing like five, six years Occupy ago. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street, that's the one. Yeah. Where the public are beginning to assert, and, you know, slowly, slowly beginning to assert like some... To state a moral preference, really, uh, a unified moral preference, which is that basically um, they dislike the way that the capitalist system um, treats them as individuals. And they feel, you know, it's, it's robbed them of their autonomy. So again, these principles that we spoke about earlier, you know, it's, it's robbed them of their autonomy. There's not a real sense of justice, you know, when um, Barack Watts-his-face can pay his way out of prison sort of thing. Um, you know, we keep on seeing these instances and people are, are really beginning to, to cotton on to it. Corona's been a brilliant example of, like, why capitalism doesn't work, why you need to have, like, a sort of universal basic income, why you have to have good social welfare nets. Mm. Because when things like this happen, and Corona, as far as I'm concerned, is just the beginning you know, we've forgotten about things like diabetes and, you know, diabetes is going to have the, the economic impact of the disease like diabetes has, you know, we're basically looking at this exponential growth right now. Um, and, you know, I think they say in like the next 20 years, diabetes is basically going to be the number one killer. Um, mm. And, it, you know, will have far exceeded cancer. Um, is, is that because of the, um, how a lot of the third world's being alleviated out of poverty, so there being more new, like, um, call it. Well, it's not the third world; it's the first world. It's a, you know, it's Australia, America, England. 
there's, com- there's countries where we have diets that are super high in fat and protein, you know, where we have food readily available and our work is essentially sedentary. Do you think that's some- it's kind of somewhat a paradox of this productivity that we have gone because of the springboard, we've gone too far too quickly in some areas. So we couldn't catch up um, in others. Like, let's just use smartphones as an example. They have, just think back to 15 years ago, first time, I think that was roughly the first time an iPhone was released. And it was like, wow. And they are very powerful these days. But we didn't know the other repercussions that that would have on socializing addiction for one, probably that were a lot of us to some extent addicted to our phones and it's a hard one to overcome because it it's, it's not really addressed. So useful. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is it's super useful, but it comes with all these things that we have don't really understand. Mm. It's, it's a mixed use. It's like you can be sometimes using it for something super useful and sometimes it's a time to be brain dead and just scroll. Yeah. So that's what I, I'm definitely, sorry, I, I'm definitely realizing this a lot with um, teaching the kids, the kindergarten kids. Mm-hmm. So I think in education, this is where the problem first arises is that the kids are beginning to lose interest faster. And that's because they have this kind of dopaminic machine just constantly, mm-hmm. you know, giving them, asking for their attention. And it's really hard for kids to focus in class because of it. Um, and so you can do, see it. Yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, so do a lot of your kids, like, do you see them using devices? Oh, no, they're not or... allowed in class. They're not allowed in class. So the te- we, we have a, an iPad, but it's like we almost, in terms of the content, we have to compete with this tablet. Um, which, you know, it, it, it's a judge of a good kindergarten teacher to be more engaging. You should be more engaging anyway, but at the same time, like, you shouldn't have to. Like, kids, even at the most boring of times, the kids should have the perseverance to push through a boring class as well, which I think that's what it's taking away from the generation. Mm. Yeah, I I really agree. I think it's it's sad. I saw it like uh, ironically on YouTube. I saw a, a really a funny a funny joke, and the guy was saying that he's like, oh, you know, old people are going to be so boring in the future, you know, and you know he's talking about looking at photos and doing things and. You know, his example was, you know, all of the, like, the grandmother showing the granddaughter all of her selfies from when she was good looking. And anyway, just, it was, oh, yeah. it, was a, it was just funny, but it was just one of those things that like, no, it's really true. Like, uh, I have really vivid memories of not even just childhood, but, you know, the teenage years. And then, you know, I feel privileged that I've got, like, lots of younger siblings to look at. And when I do look at them, I there's a really clear difference in how we approach our day-to-day lives. Like, I remember, like, you just turned up to people's houses, right? Like, you didn't call, you didn't text. And if they weren't home, you went somewhere else and you got on your, you know, you 
basically just walked wherever mm-hmm. you needed to go. Had to take that risk and just... Yeah. Because it, it was a risk. It was a risk of wasting your time. It was a social risk of, will they even want me here? Um, mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I took that risk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now, like, yeah, one of my, my brother, he's, like, needed to text his friend to see if it was okay to call to ask if he could go over. And in my head, I was like, that you remove that spontaneity. And that, that's one of the greatest joys is like, I like remember all the times that like, you know, you just turn up and you know, random things would happen. Like your day would be uh, just the, you like as an adult, you think, yeah. yeah, but you know, you would just do random things all day, you know, like, I don't know, go and buy eggs or something in the morning and then, you know, end up like having a massive party in the evening. Life and through somewhat less predictable, which yeah. was more exciting. Yeah, when and if you were bored, it was your own fault. Yeah, it just meant that you weren't doing it. Mm. Exactly. I, I um I got to experience like the effects of the withdrawal effects of phones and technology, pretty full on when I was in the military. Yeah. Mm. And basically, there was like a period of three months where we weren't allowed to have any devices. We couldn't go onto our phones. Um, we couldn't ask anyone what's going on on the in ship. Being called <clears throat> um and the out uh, yeah that's downfall technology right there um but yeah basically everything was just inside and i felt after coming out of that that i was so much more creative so much more curious like something had sharpened and i could physically feel it something had sharpened in my head from the lack of phones um and at, at the moment, I'm writing a paper on curiosity, imagination, and creativity for the school. And then there's like there's some serious neurological reasons why this is. It's like when you ask someone a question, like a very open-ended question, and then if their immediate response is to just go to the phone and ask Google, mm. there's a process that's missing in the brain like this process which allows for curiosity imaginative thinking creativity and basically it's just this curiosity just kind of wonder what something is or how it's that or trying to think in multiple ways um like sometimes those so are the funnest conversations when you literally have no idea so you just try and figure it out from what you do you have a go sometimes yeah. it's wrong but it can be fun it can be funny so my, my teaching method is definitely, um, I never say something is definitely wrong. Like, uh, it's just basically encouraging an answer. Mm-hmm. But as long as it's like, it seems like it's been thought about, it's okay. I think there's been so much, and I'm going into education heavily again, but there's been so much emphasis on the right and wrong, the factual and non-factual. And like you said it it takes away the human process which is the if neurologically speaking it's the midbrain interacting with the hippocampus Mm. and just that process kind of interacting with with each other and giving a dopamine hit when you found the answer but it's not finding the answer straight away it's having this moment of curiosity which sparks and all of that kind of ties in together and that's the, the phone is definitely 
like taking that away from people well the whole right and wrong isn't that a bit of a fallacy anyway like that we say something's right and something's wrong like to some extent there are some things where you can be like i guess that's right based off these by math terms axioms that you've given the system so the rules you've defined but in i guess the deeper i get into my science the more i'm sort of realizing that all these right and wrong answers are based off these theories which are you know they are backed up 99% of the time or 95% of the time and sure this is the process that we go through in our education system to get this correct answer Mm. but you can definitely question that answer like is it you should well that's that's basically the socratic method right and this is the foundation of like how how do you know what you know Mm. and it's it's like the philosophical foundation for thinking like this but but i mean i'm sure people even before that did question but i think i'll probably put it into there's probably one question some suffering of the dunning kruger effect as well of being in that (laughs) yeah sorry i was dunning i love dunning kruger (laughs) i heard a a disillusionment or whatever yeah i yeah i had a really funny interview the other day with um who was i think it was kruger actually and he was saying um that he's really sad that his name has been taken (laughs) he's like i I wish it hadn't been called dunning I'm missing out on something. What's so Dunning Kruger? The Dunning Kruger effect. It's basically, you know, first time you see something, almost you you, you see it and you're like, oh, that doesn't look too hard. Um, uh-huh. Bet I could do that. And you know, for first few times you might get somewhat beginner's luck. Then you, the more you do it, the more you find out all these complexities within the system, and you're like, oh wow, wow this is actually incredibly oh, difficult. Okay. And then mm. you start to think. This is very hard. I don't. I know nothing about it. I'm well, who said it. that? Who said that? The more you know, the more you know, the the less you know. It's like you know. <laughs> yeah. no, because the more you know, the the circle of being attached to the things that you don't know, yeah, becomes increased. Yeah, that's true. Because as in a circle, as the radius increases. Um, yeah, what circumference two pi r. That's it. <laughs> right. I can't remember that. Yeah, there's the um, the four stages of competence, and that sort of um, like unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, um, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. Mm. Um, and then there's like the I I think in education you hear about Dunning Kruger a lot in terms of test taking. Because another part of the study was people who uh, had to guess how well they performed in an exam were often really wrong. The people, they vastly overestimated their abilities, um, which is the, which is like the, the sort of outcome of all of, all of their initial work, which is like, you think something is really easy and you have to go, you can't just do something. You actually have to go through the stages of learning it. Um, and each stage has like kind of discrete, uh, there's kind of like a discrete epistemic and didactic 
um, subdidactic, yeah, um, uh, ideas and things that happen, these sort of processes. And you have to go through these stages in order to actually achieve a relative level of competence. Mm. Um, and, and at that point, then you have like the conscious competence where it's like, you know what you know, you're aware of what you don't know, and you're able to apply the information that you do know well. And then you get to the next level where it's like the, all of the information has advanced so far beyond you, but you haven't recognized that. And you think you're still, you know, really on top of the work, the latest literature, you know, what's going on. And so there are those two in between. So there's the conscious competence and then there's the um, unconscious incompetence. And then there's the conscious incompetence. And these two realms that sit either side um, where like a lot of the mistakes are made and you find like a lot of the people who estimate their test scores or like they think they know the most amount of information um, and that's where a lot of the mistake making happens mm. so that's um, I thought that was a really interesting outcome of their research mm. sometimes I wonder if I'm sitting at like the unconscious incompetence <laughs> Or the unconscious confidence could be well, one of those who, two. I don't know. Who made that? Who made that? Did that research about uh, basically the less good you are at something, the less you're likely to know that you're not good at that thing. Well, um, I'll just it's too many double negatives. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Because usually, like, um the skills that require you that to tell yourself that you're good at a thing are also the skills to tell you that you're not good at a thing and those who are not good at a thing don't have enough skill to be able to tell themselves that they're good or not good mm. that i think ties directly into those four the stages dunning -Kruger. Um, like the, the dunning kruger is almost like this roller coaster plot where it has like confidence level versus skill level and the confidence is not a, a direct straight line. And so there's a lot of pe people uh, that I guess I see it a lot on Twitter um, that talk about imposter syndrome of uh -huh. they, they do actually know it reasonably well, but they feel like they don't, they feel like, they shouldn't be in the position they're in um, and that they're just walking around being like, let's hope no one catches me out that I shouldn't be here. <laughs> um, yeah. I got a hell of a lot of that at my um, final months of the thesis. Hmm. Yeah. You'd think it'd be the opposite, but like, yeah, as you're exactly coming right. to the point where you're like, I'm starting to know this, but it's, no, there's so you, much you more. You, you get to the point of there's these are the things I'm starting to realize I don't know. There might be someone that does know it that will be able to call me out on not knowing that. Like, yeah. Stop. Yeah. It's um, I don't know. I'm a firm believer of just go for it. <laughs> no, but then I wouldn't say that at the time. I was feeling pretty stressed. But that's it. it. It's it's all about like um, I feel it's all about tension and release, like music. So so even in this effect, where you go in through phases of 
just doubting your abilities, doubting your competence, doubting your capacity to do anything. And then if you do survive that, um, subconsciously that will start almost building you back up to a level where you think you're, you are competent and you're ready to go at it again or something or, and that you actually have new insights on how to move forward. Um, yeah. And uh, well, and that's what I was saying about those, um, like those smaller tacit experiences embedded within it, it this kind of epistemic, um, yeah, this kind of epistemic process that you have to go through, you know, the, finding these ways of knowing, because it's not just about what you know, but it's about how you know. Um, mm. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting and in, um, it's really easy to relate to medicine because a lot of the older clinicians, we talk about gut instinct a lot and a lot of the older clinicians just go like that and they've already got the answer. Like they can walk into a room and look at a patient before they've looked at any of the paperwork. They can look at the patient and be like, I'm going to say that based on the way I look at you, I can basically narrow it down to probably five different disease processes based on these factors. Mm. And it's really frustrating as a junior to to have people look at you and go, how come you didn't get that? Like, what's wrong with you? You know, it's really obvious that this person is sick with this disease. Look at them. They're like, you know, they're jaundiced. They're, you know, hypertensive. You know, you can see all of these other signs and symptoms. They are, I bet if you go and look at their nails, they'll be clubbed or whatever, you know, and they have lung cancer or, you know, they've got some kind of biliary problem. Um, yeah. So far progressed. They've forgotten but, what it's but like then, to yeah. get there. They've had enough time to go through all the different possibilities that, or all the different possibilities that weren't the case yeah. um, in order to get to the one that is and then to have that instinctual reaction to whatever it is. Whereas yeah. if you haven't had that experience, you can really... Yeah. And, and I just, I'll add to this because there's a really interesting study done by... Okay, so there's one done by a guy at uh, Newcastle. Uh, Kaz, you might like to chase him up. He's one of the anthropology lecturers and I'll give you his name when I remember it. Um, God, I can't remember this guy's name. That's awful. Yeah, anyway, he, he did a really interesting um, PhD on risk-taking behaviours. I think I know you said a little bit that. Um, yeah, and he basically, what he did was he, it was a, it was a, God, what was it, like an ethnographic, I can't even remember what it was. All I can remember is like the the main paper, which is basically he like entrenched himself in a group of climbers and looked at the whole process of climbing from beginning to end, learning how to be a rock climber. Um, and so he embedded himself in this community and, and went through all of these experiences. And he talks about uh, risk-taking behaviours and training for risk. And it's really big because actually, and again with social media, you know, if you're interested in something like skiing, right, and you go onto Instagram or Pinterest or YouTube and you you look at all of these images of people skiing and you think, God, I can do that. I can do a backflip. How hard is it to do a backflip on skis? And you walk out and, again, you might nail the backflip on skis into Dunning-Kruger. You know, you've got this perfect example of, like, where you actually haven't had to go through the whole process of learning to ski right from the beginning. You know, you have that psyche, you have the attitude, you've got the, the sort of ethos that's required, but you don't have the skill. And it's not that you can't do a backflip on skis, but you haven't got the fine-tuned, like, instinctive 
um, responses to things. And we, you know, we talk about this a lot in, um, you know, it's like, I guess in skiing or in climbing. Um, and again, like in terms of police work as well is the perfect example of like training police using, um, uh, using these big simulation rooms. And you look at the decision-making process that the police go through uh, and the young trainees go through. And there's a really perfect example of, um, and this was part of Dunning-Kruger, I think, a part of their study, um, which was to um, put young recruits in a situation and see how long it took them to react to somebody walking into a school with bombs strapped to their chest and, and what their reaction was. And then they measured that against, um, measured that against like the older more experienced police officers and they had all of these other situational cues to go off body language um you know and their own personal experience and when it came to making these decisions that's the sort of framework that they used um so yeah it's like it's it's one of those things and you know risk-taking behaviors i guess like you know you have to train yourself not to do things like when you're on a motorcycle in wet weather um you know, your intuitive response is to break really, you know, to break the, the same amount. And on a bike, that same reaction that you would have in a car is way more detrimental because, you know, you've got, you know, what, like less than a quarter of the amount of, mm. of tyre surface area in contact with the road. You have all of these other variables. Um, and so it actually, you know, being a good motorcyclist, and, and this goes for P-platers just generally, is it's easy to get into a car and put your foot down. It's easy to get onto a bike and pull the throttle. It's everything that happens when things go wrong. That's the kind of skill refinement that we're looking at. And you see it in medicine. It's like, it's really easy to treat people and to throw drugs at them um, when you have like a vague idea of what the diagnosis will be. Um, and, but really in emergency, you know, you do all of these simulation trainings because you have to know what you're going to do when things go wrong. And your, your intuition is not something you should actually be relying on, but you should be relying on your experience. And so, you know, this is what differentiates people. You know, this is the, this is the key thing is you have to have, and the same thing with teachers in classrooms. When you watch a well-seasoned teacher walk into a classroom, um, you know, you watch the students, you know, not pull out their books anymore, but begin to pay attention. You watch them capture the room. You know, you have, it's, it's amazing to watch. It's, it's a real privilege to watch an experienced teacher walk, walk into a room. Um, and, and yeah, I think like, you know, it's just anecdotally, like uh, I know like watching, watching, um, uh, watching my mother teach German is a really rewarding process for me well for a long time it was just something she went out and did and when you actually when I was actually part of her class as a student at university um and we you know we had these other teachers and they were they were good enough but you know mum is a classroom teacher with you know like what 30 something years worth of experience and it really showed because she walked into the classroom and she had everybody working and, you know, she had all of these students engaged, which I've been watching for weeks, like totally disengaged. And within two hours, she had basically got everybody up to the same level. And the sort of class confidence, the, the atmosphere, just totally different. And that's the sort of thing, you know, you have to learn all the really small tacit parts of, um, yeah, parts of a particular job or 
field of interest, you know. Have you had conversations with your mum about her teaching and like, does she know the things she does? Does she have specific techniques or some of it's just subconsciously she's picked up? Some of it, well, I think a lot of the techniques were consciously developed and then have now become subconscious. Mm. Um, So, you know, things like where she positions herself in the room, how she holds herself, you know, even her, her enunciation changes, everything, everything about her demeanor changes. And the other thing is it changes from student to student. Uh, you know, again, I remember watching her teach in high school and some pre- particularly difficult students. Supercon? Um, mm, no, 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 I didn't have Jenny. No, I, I knew, I knew, I, I've heard great things about her. I, I remember um, oftentimes a lot of the, the students would just come up and just like ask her for it, it. She had a way of sparking the interest that it seemed very natural and organic for when the stu- student picked it up to just go back and I don't mm. know, yeah. consult her. She seemed to have that rapport with students who were inherently, you know, the naughty kids, but yeah, I, I don't know if they were naughty particularly, but that, well, I think traditionally that's how they'd be seen from probably upper management or something at the school they're the naughty uh, kids but yeah and that was a really that you know that's really purposeful of her you know that was part of her her goal as a teacher right from the beginning of her career um was to be that teacher and so she spent a lot of time honing those communication skills and practicing dialogues and and learning um but you know you know coming coming back like uh to the to technology and phones I remember really distinctly, um, uh, you know, we would have all been in year 12 at the time. And I just remember watching her walk around the corridor. I was in another class watching her walk around the corridor with like this gaggle of students behind her. And she went and stood in a corner of a corridor and then told them some facts. I can't remember what it was. And, you know, then she moved on to another part of the school and people, somebody asked me what she was doing. I had no idea. And when we got home, I said, I asked her, you know, what on earth were you doing? And so she started dancing and her dance was, her dance were all of the facts that the kids were required to pull out in the exam. So all of the stuff that was in the syllabus and she was giving them. So, and this is before mind palaces were like a big thing. And Mm. she was physically giving them locations to like pinpoint things, memories, but on top of that, she was giving them a song and a dance. And the dance consisted of like, you know, touching your head or like touching your bottom or your knees or your toes, you know, really simple stuff. And she said then she actually had to invigilate the exam. And she could see all the students in her class touching, you know, touching their head or touching their knees or, you know, thinking really hard about things. And most of her students were able to pull out at least the bare minimum, which is, you know, more than you know, more than many other students could, you know, they were able to recite facts, they had dates, you know, they can, everyone in her class, you know, there's a whole group of students from Armadale who know who Cyril Percy Callister is. And Cyril Percy Callister is the person who invented Vegemite in 1939, I think it was, something like that. I can't remember. But anyway. You obviously didn't take a class. I didn't take the class, no. Bummer. So, <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of that, Thailand's going through a massive education reform. Do you think it's, for the positive or? 
it sounds like it. It sounds like uh, a lot of the students are coming out to say that actually we're sick of this system of seniority. We're sick of this system of, uh, of um, authoritarian teachers. Um, and it's true. You, you, that's not how you develop critical thinking is just a person in front of the class telling you how you should think and what the facts are. That's not how you teach or inspire thinking. So, but that's how a lot of the teachers in the current system have been trained to do. So that was their background. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for everyone else, um, apparently. So that, and they've worked their way within the system. So it's about job stability as well. That because they've been able to push, make their way in the system, they should have a sec security in their job. And someone with a new idea that's, you know, or maybe we should teach in a way that the teacher isn't ultimate authority and that we should more like have a dialogue with the students. That's a bit more, that's a radical thing and it's not valued in Thai society. Um, so I think there's a change in, especially a lot of the international schools because they, they have experience, they have more of an international curriculum and they experience this. Uh, the problem with that is most of them are too privileged to care about what happens in public schools. So they go on and then they continue exploiting them and don't question it. But some, which um, has been the case recently, some have been criticizing that system and using their position of privilege uh, to be like, actually, no, this stuff should be for everyone. Like critical thinking, it shouldn't just be the, the rich kids who could afford the education. Mm. So, so there is a reform and, and the fact that there's an economic incentive now to do it, that because you're not just going to get a job by learning how to take instructions. That's not, going, that's not very sustainable. So you need to give the kids the ability to think for themselves so that they can get a job in the economics mm. of the future. But yeah, I mean, it's all a fight because there's still people, the majority of people in the system believe otherwise and they can't see, they're very short-sighted. Mm. Well, it's an interesting point you kind of put in there about those in privilege often being the ones in power, but then how do you ignite that empathetic response of those that are non-privileged when they yeah. have well, never experienced it? I've read, uh, I've been reading a lot about the Finnish education system and basically how they don't have, uh, they don't separate public to private. Basically it's all pu public and all the same level of public, very mm. high quality public. And part of the reason for doing that is so that even the wealthiest kid uh, goes through school with the not so well off kid. And then by the end of it, the wealthy kid goes on to have these businesses and they they won't exploit the poor because that's their friend. You know, they understand that they've been able to relate to these people. So, so that's been, I mean, reading that was like, oh, that makes so much sense, but it's, it would be so difficult to do something like that in Thailand. Mm -hmm. Be hard to implement. Um, it, it would, if anything, it's probably more like the French revolution <laughs> thing that needs to be done here. Being that we need, uh, 
the the resistance definitely had a lot of help from the bourgeoisie otherwise mm -hmm. they're just just powerless they're just a bunch of needy people who just oppressed people without any power um so some bourgeoisie did have to help overthrow um mm. the other bourgeoisie basically so i think something like that needs to happen and and like even more relevant to the french revolution is people were talking down about the monarchy and how that whole system was just oppressing the whole because that and system. that's a pretty controversial standpoint isn't it like in thailand you can't really speak out against the um, ever ever since the George Floyd thing, protests on the street—that's what it's all been about. Really, uh, the students? Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a breakthrough in Thai society. Uh, I, I I would say I think a lot of the older generations would say it's uh, just rebellion for its own sake. But I see it. You know, I think your opinion on it is going to largely depend on your age and what generation you're from, really. Mm. but and then at the end of the day you're going to be like well it's not your future that you're like to the older people that it's not your future that you're dictating like it's it's our future so that that's the bottom line of it yeah do we need child representatives in parliament <laughs> How productive or productive might it be? I don't know. I think I actually, I actually think there is a place for that. I really do. I think that you know we have this notion of like maturity and adulthood at you know at eighteen. It's like you turn eighteen and suddenly you're endowed with all of this privilege. Mm. But you know I think you, you watch a show like Q and A, and when they do have the high school students on there, they are very, very intelligent yeah it's there's like broken. yeah i mean you know i certainly wasn't like that in high school i'm still um, not yeah dude i was dude i was dude you, you know i was yeah. i was so intellectual in high school and you used it all up there's a finite <laughs> finite number of intellectual neurons and they just mm, actually that's raised an idea that perhaps we don't want to subjugate children to the politicians I, I, I think it would be awesome because it it would give a face to people who are totally unbiased like the children's representative wouldn't necessarily have to have they wouldn't necessarily have to be aligned with any party they could just be a mm -hmm. voice in parliament uh, you know there's it, it, it's said often enough that like children have the kind of the purest moral conscience because they're not corrupted by any of the materialistic things because they haven't had that they haven't had that in their life yet mm. you know they, they might have had things bought for them but the idea of having more an accumulation like an accumulation of wealth is not something that is on their radar would they need i guess it will be very um pure their opinion will be very pure in mm. some respects but oftentimes the polit the ideas that's raised in politics is like They'll be like, why are we getting this opinion from this kid who mm. doesn't know, hasn't been through this, that, the other, like, uh, what's that? Steady kid. And... How, do you, how do you prevent bribery of the children too? Well, yeah. yeah. Innocent minds. Mm. And corrupting. A tabula rasa. Yeah. 
Like it, That's an interesting question. Like at a surface level, it's got some merit, and then at an implementation level, there'd be a lot of, I don't know, there'd need to be some rulings and laws placed for the protection of the children, for one, and protection of their role as that innocent bystander that, like, sure, bribery is illegal already, but this is next level. Like, child bribery is a higher crime. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would I would agree. Because, you know, I don't think, like, you know, you look at somebody like Bob Catter or like, Barnaby wait. Joyce or, you know, all of the, many of the politicians... But it's like you hear, like a lot of the politicians, like their credentials are and merits are naught. They knew somebody or, you know, they own lots of land and were, you know, again, it's like the proletariat versus the bourgeois, you know, and they, they basically had the means or, you know, in sociological terms, you know, they had the, there's a, a really interesting framework which is like the idea of social capital, cultural capital, economic capital, all of these things and you use them to manipulate the world around you um, and they sort of your biggest influences as well as like, and, and so our lives are spent trying to accumulate these things. doesn't matter what sphere it's in, you know, you, you can have lots of social and cultural capital in, you know, Bogan, Australia. That's possible. But, you know, in the realm of politics, like, that's what we see. People with the most influence, you know, gain the most power, mm. you know. Yeah, I was just saying something the other day about if Trump wins, it's basically, I mean, this could be a very simplistic view of that election, but it, one thing it definitely means is that wealth and fame are the only things that should be respected in a society. I mean, that's a very radical view of it, but I mean, it, it, it would be like a very pessimistic look at, but even if wins a very realistic look of how the world is. He has somewhat polarized America. Mm. Like. No, I don't know if I want to get into American politics. No, but, no, no. but yeah, I, will, I get too much of that on my feed. It's very annoying. Um, I, I guess I heard something. I mean, Jack said it the other day. Of everyone is pretty much in their mindset or party. Like, if you're a Democrat, you vote Democrat. If you're a Republican, you vote public Republican. So Trump himself, because he's so an enigma, I guess, so radical, um, it's how much will that push the people that are on whichever side to vote or not, not people swinging from side to side so much. Yeah. I think who's the other, Joe Biden, right? Yeah. It's like uh, if you ask a Joe Biden voter. Tell me why you're voting for Joe Biden. That doesn't involve Trump. Can you do it? Mm. It's like, no, it's just because it's not Trump. Like it seems to be the only thing. Yeah. Mm. You'd, you'd hope that wasn't true if you were going for president. But yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it partly seems like his campaign. 
Like if you go on his Twitter, it's kind of like, look forward to having less tweets from your president. <laughs> it's just the train of thought that just hits a brick wall. There's just no, no philosophy that can go into it that's going to predict or rationalize what's happening over there. It's going to be seriously interesting, but I'm too tired to think about it now. Yeah. yeah Is that okay? Right, yeah, we've been on here for two hours. We 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 covered all the questions except for one. What is life? What is life? We already did what is life, but we oh, do yeah. what is the meaning of life? For example, is it better to be productive for society or happy? Ooh. Oh, it's interesting that you put them in opposition with each other. Yeah, ideally both, but yeah, I think that's if, a if they were dichotomy. in opposition, you know. Well, there'd be some positions for society which uh, I guess may inherently be less happy lifestyles, but then that is coming to the fact of your position linking to happiness, which things like meditation and mindfulness would say your position and happiness aren't linked. It depends. I mean, at that point, it depends how you define something like happiness. Is it so? And again, this kind of comes like really full circle. Is is happiness like the absence of sadness? Is it the absence of pain or you know displeasure in your life? Or it sounds like numbness. Well, I mean, look, it's you know, or like you know, how can you know if you're happy if you've never been sad? You know, like you have to have in these kind of like seemingly like binary and dichotomous ideas, you have to have um, you have to have boundaries to your question. And so yeah, it's, and it's really difficult to answer. Something it, I like think that. that just, yeah, very separate parameters. I mean, I think the happiness question is just pertain to the emotional state, which you can have whether you're productive or not. Mm. And productivity is probably more intellectual. And mm. you can do that whether you're happy or not. Um, what if, I don't think they're bounded by each other. Uh, it's more what a society values, I think, rather than these two being at, in conflict within a person. Um, yeah, society might value one which causes a war within someone's head. But I don't think that they need to be at war with each other in, mm. on an individual level. Um, I guess if there was a situation where in five years you killed cancer, but for some reason that process made you miserable the whole time, made you miserable. would you do it? Um, yeah, because I guess maybe the reward is to cure cancer and that's like the biggest joy you get. I mean, it's like very delayed gratification. Um, that like heavily delayed, but it doesn't mean it's it's suffering. It's justified suffering almost. Um, and you can see that it will make a lot of people happy. And if happiness is rooted in some sort of, All right. what if 
you were curing cancer because you had cancer. You basically did everything to solve it. Um, and your work is what caused it to be solved one month after your death. Or you spend those next five years being happy. Uh, it's way too grim. Okay. Jody's putting forward an alternative. Because in that previous case, the the negative was on yourself. Um, so you felt miserable and then you're curing cancer. This is in order to be happy, you kill people. <laughs> oh, um, people. Like, perhaps you're Dexter. I don't know. Jeez, that's a wild uh, ride. So in order to be happy, you had to kill people. Um, let's simplify it to your happiness was reliant on making others less happy. So like a kind of form of sadism, right? Yeah. Like a parking ticket inspector. <laughs> That's so personal. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. Um, well, yeah, I have no idea. That's a really interesting question. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm going to have to go. Sounds good. We'll catch up again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of NI in the Future. If anything from today's episode sparked an idea or you'd like to find out more, I'd love to hear about it. So leave a comment on YouTube, find me on Twitter, rate the podcast, or visit niinthefuture.com to get in contact. Look forward to you joining us for the next episode. So keep an eye on the future for when it comes out.